that. Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts, my soul longs. Yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Beginning in verse 9 is where we are going to focus our attention in the final message of four today. O God, behold our shield, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for your presence here this morning, so grateful that we can come near to you, and our access is given to us through the person and the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you because we have felt your presence. You have been among us. And I ask, Lord, in these next few minutes that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room I pray, God, that you would help me, not because I have earned or deserve it, but because I need your anointing. And I ask, God, that you would grant that to me today. Help me to to rightly communicate and appropriately communicate your word to our hearts today. I ask, God, that you would just uh, do a very special work. As you arrest us toward your word, I pray, God, that we would hear clearly the voice of the Holy Spirit, and God, you would speak to our hearts and change and transform us in these moments that we share together today, I pray, and I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you just turn to someone and nod at them, fist bump them, wave at them across the way, and uh, greet them and welcome them this morning to Glad Tidings. So today we are uh, concluding Four weeks in Psalm 84, the series title, I Would Rather Be a Doorkeeper. And uh, in this series, uh, I want to just share with you briefly what we have covered because this will be the last Sunday that we will be here. In Psalm 84, first of all, we have learned that this series is about the pursuit of God's presence. It's all about getting closer to Him. It's all about knowing Him more intimately, not only individually, We've talked a lot about, and really this psalm is about the corporate gathering of God's people and how they experience the presence of God together and how we can experience God's presence as a corporate body. If you remember, and this will be the last time I'll say it, but this is a pilgrimage psalm. They are, the people of God are making their way to Jerusalem. They're going to the tabernacle, later to the temple, with the expectation that when they gather there as the people of God, they will experience the manifest presence of God. They are on a journey toward experiencing the presence of God. 
Secondly, we learn that this is a pursuit that doesn't have any earthly comparison. Nothing else can compare to experiencing God's presence personally or corporately. Thirdly, we learn that this pursuit will always come with struggles, will always come with temptations, temptations to trust our own strength and somehow think that we can maneuver ourselves into the presence of God, or temptation to focus on all the noise that's going on in the world, or temptation to be uh, distracted by the valley that we may be walking through, or the dry season, somehow thinking, if it's this difficult, I'll never make it into God's presence. So this pursuit comes with struggles and temptations. And then finally, we learned that this pursuit requires an intentional commitment to progress. I have to be intentional about wanting to draw near to God's presence individually or for church. We have to be intentional about this process. We have to be content in this intentionality. We have to be content with the simple message of Christ. We have to surrender to being transformed in a lasting way. And we have to have a deepening hunger for God. These are the things that we've talked about in the previous three weeks. Let's put on the screen again these last four verses because this is where we are going to camp out for the next 25 or 30 minutes. So God, behold our shield. Look upon the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. These four verses uh, reveal to us the incomparable worth. I want you to get that in your mind and in your spirit, the incomparable worth of pursuing the presence of God. It is worthwhile in an incomparable way way. I want you to think about that, and I want to share with you four principles that just jump out at us from these four verses. Number one, um, the privilege of knowing the joy of God's manifest presence will only come to those who take their place in Christ by faith. You will never experience the glory of God's presence unless you understand that the only way to experience that is to take your place in Christ. Look at verse 9 again. This is an important truth. Oh God, behold our shield and look on the face of your anointed. I want you to think with me and try to picture in your mind, if you could, these pilgrims that are traveling toward Jerusalem. These are just everyday folk. These are people that make a living, and sometimes that making a living is hard. They're people that have dirtied their hands in the daily grind of the world. They are people that have had bad days. They have been frustrated with the way things have gone. But now it's time to go to the tabernacle. So they load up their families, and I'm sure they argued on the way. No one ever argues on their way to church, right? But they argued on their way with their families, and they told the kids to be quiet and not be so restless. And these are just normal, everyday people with filthy hands, spiritually, hearts that are not completely pure by any stretch of the imagination. These are not priests. These are not kings. These are not royalty. These are not people that have a claim on the presence of God. 
But they are making their way toward Jerusalem knowing that they really have no right to come into God's presence. And so their prayer is, God, look on the face of your anointed. Look on the face of your king, King David, and for his sake, allow us to come near. He wants us to draw near. He has invited us to this place to worship. And so don't look at us, but look at his desire. Look on the face of your anointed. We cannot bear, O oh God, they would say, to be seen by you. But for his sake, as you look on the face of your anointed, we request access into your presence. This is the key, listen, that unlocks the truth to our access to God's presence. We don't ask God for access to his presence based on our merits. We don't say, God, I really deserve it, man. I had a great week this week, and I have lived really well, and I've given more than I've ever given, and I, I have served more, and I've read the Bible more this week, and I've really had a good week, and so I'm asking to come into your presence because of my merits. We don't do that. As a matter of fact, Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, look at this, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us, look at this last line, accepted in the beloved. Go with me, if you would, to the baptism of Jesus. And uh, Jesus goes into the water. John the Baptist first says, I don't want to baptize you. I don't have any right to. Jesus said, you need to. I need to fulfill all righteousness. He baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes out of the water. And when he comes out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him in the form of a dove on his head. And the Father speaks from heaven and says what? This is who? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Everybody look at me for just a moment. I don't want to offend anyone, but I want you to look everyone in this room. Your acceptance in God's presence has zero to do with you and has everything to do with the fact that the beloved son has been accepted and by faith you have stepped into him and received his righteousness and that is what gives you access into the presence of God. Say amen if you believe that this morning. It's not me, it's not my goodness. It's that Jesus has been accepted. Look on the face of your anointed. Look on your beloved is our prayer and know that we are in him. We are not coming with our goodness. We're not coming based on our righteousness. We are coming based on his and by faith we have stepped into him and in him we can stand before God as righteous. How many are really grateful for that this morning? It's because of Christ that we are accepted in Him. That has implications for us, for worship. 
And, and can I just pause a minute? I wasn't going to do this. Mike Roby, you've done this with me before. Would you come up and stand? I want to show you, many of you have seen this illustration too many times. You're probably sick of it, but I want you to get this, all right? Now, in, in Romans chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, this isn't in a note, so I'm going to have to hurry because I didn't really time for this. But in Romans chapter 8, you stand here on the top. You know this illustration pretty well. You're the tallest guy I know, all right? So Romans chapter 8. Now watch this. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For what the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of human flesh. He condemned our sin, or He, he destroyed the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, what is the righteous requirement of a law? Anybody know? I'll tell you. It is you have to be perfect. How many are in trouble? If you have to be perfect to make it to heaven, all right, everybody raise your hand. You're all in trouble. All right, if, if you have to be perfect, you're in trouble. Let's assume that the Bible said you had to be 10 feet tall to make it to heaven. How many would be in trouble? All right, you would be. Mike would be closer than the rest of us, okay? Now, when Mike stands on that, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but work with me, all right? Let's assume Mike is 10 feet tall, all right? Standing on that, he's 10 feet tall. Now, if I decide, I want, and we're going to call him Christ. It's the only time Nikki never does, but we will. We will call you Christ, and he's 10 feet tall, and I know that I'm going to be judged, and I'm five. I like to say 5'8", but I need to be honest in church. I'm probably 5'7", all right? I'm 5'7", and the righteous requirement of the law is I have to be 10 feet tall, so I am in trouble unless I place my faith in Him. And I say, I'm going to step into Christ, not trust myself. I'm going to step into Him. And now when God sees me, He sees Christ 10 feet tall, and he says to Kevin Holt, I will let you into my presence, not because of your goodness, but because you've stepped into Christ, who is 10 feet tall. That's why it makes no sense to stand out here at five foot seven and say, come on, God, I'll take the judgment. You just go ahead and judge me. I think I'm a pretty good guy. Well, I'm still not 10 feet tall. I'm 5'7". Some of you are in worse trouble than I am, and some of you are a little closer to God than I am because you're taller than 5'7", but only Christ is 10 feet tall. So I am accepted, you are accepted in Christ. So if I place my faith in Him, He judges me as in Him, and I have access to the presence of God. Say amen if you're thankful for that. Thank you, Mike Roby. So do you get that? We are accepted in the beloved. What are the implications for worship? Number one, I must not come arrogantly and with pride. Say, God, look what I've done. He doesn't care what you've done. It's being in Christ that gives you access. Secondly, I must not, I love this, please hear me, I must not stay away when I have fallen short or claim that I'm not worthy. There are people that walk into church and say, well, I've, I've really messed up this week and had some bad thoughts and I've done some bad things and I don't really deserve to worship today, so I'm just going to stay in there. A newsflash to all of you, you never deserved to be in God's presence. It's because of Christ, right? And so I'm still going to worship him. I'm going to worship him. I don't deserve it, but I never deserved it. I'm in Christ, and so I have access to his presence. Thirdly, please hear this. I must not judge others who I may think are unworthy. They just happen to understand that it's not Christ. That it is Christ that gives them access, not themselves. 
You see, sometimes I look at somebody else across the room, or you do, and you think, and I know how that person lives. I know what attitude they have. I know what they've done this week. I've seen it on Facebook. I don't really think they ought to be worshiping. I don't think they should have their hands up. They're not worthy enough. You know what? They just understand that it's not about their worthiness. Come on, folks. See, you believe that. It's about what Jesus has done. So I shouldn't look around and judge other people. And fourthly, I must come with a humble and a grateful heart. Michael Horton says this, the gospel, I love this, is not good instructions. It's not a good idea. It's not good advice. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The good news is not how good I am. The good news is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Number two, if a day in his presence surpasses any earthly joy, then eternity with him must never be forfeited. Look at Psalm 84 in the first part of verse 10. A day in your courts, a day in your courts is better than a thousand. While the Hebrew does not have the word elsewhere in it, the way this Hebrew sentence and the Hebrew language work, the construction of the sentence implies the word elsewhere. In other words, for a day in your courts, one day, is better than a thousand days anywhere else. That's quite a claim. Not a week in your courts, not a month, not a year in your courts. A single day in God's presence is better than a thousand days anywhere else. You see, a glimpse of God's amazing greatness makes everything else pale in comparison. The psalmist said, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Paul said in Philippians 3, I count everything else a loss for the excellency of the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The psalmist Asaph said, whom have I in heaven but you? You see, if one day is so incredible, one day in God's presence is so incredible, how foolish it would be to forfeit eternity in His presence. You see, that's why legalism doesn't change anybody's life. That's why telling them they have to live a certain way, that doesn't transform them. What transforms them is the presence of God. I want everybody to look here for just a moment. That's why I'm praying, and I hope you are, that when we worship together, and we lift up the name of Jesus, that God so inhabits our praise. He is so real, so manifest here, that people that walk in will encounter the presence of, this doesn't have to be weird, this doesn't have to be strange. It's just they encounter the presence of God and they don't ever want to leave and they say, that's what I want. It's transformative. 1 Corinthians 15, and this is not in your notes. I'm just throwing this in real quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is describing the gospel. And he describes the gospel like this. He says, the gospel is this, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried according to the Scriptures, that He was raised, and then He was seen by, and he lists all these people that Jesus saw after His resurrection. So as Paul describes the gospel, Jesus died, buried, resurrected, and then was seen. But how did it happen for Paul? 
Paul's name was Saul, by the way, before it was Paul. He was on his way to Damascus where he was going to kill Christians. He heard the stories about Jesus being raised from the dead. He didn't want to believe it. He denied it. He rejected it. And anybody who believed in that, he wanted to kill. And he was on his way to kill some. And all of a sudden, a light struck him down. And Christ spoke to him. And Christ said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in just a few moments, Saul's life was transformed. And Saul became the greatest preacher of the gospel. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, changed millions of people's lives. But notice how the gospel worked in Paul's life. He described the gospel as the death of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection, and then seeing him. But with Paul, it began with seeing him, didn't it? I saw him first. And then he says, that's the one that they say is resurrected. And if he was resurrected, he must have been buried. And if he's the buried one, he's the one that was crucified. And so his whole experience was inverted. I'm just going to tell you in 2021, when people are speculative and they don't have the gospel in them, they've not heard the word of God, we may see more and more people that encounter the presence of Christ, and that's what transforms them. His presence, a true encounter with them will change people forever. Michael Quick wrote these words, when I was nine or ten years old, my parents gave me a birthday surprise. They announced I was going on a mystery tour and I needed to be blindfolded. First we drove a few miles and I was helped out of the car giggling, trying unsuccessfully to see out of the blindfold sides and needing to hold on to my parents' hands. Quick says, I had no idea where we were at first. We walked in the open air and then we entered a building and we began climbing up the steps, up and up. I knew it must be a tower. Once or twice he said people passed by and they would just jokingly say, you kidnapping him? They said, and we just continued to climb higher. Reaching the top, I could feel the sun, he says, and the breeze on my face. My mother and father took the blindfold off, and I blinked with happiness at the sight before me. I was at the top of the Cabot Tower in Bristol, England. The city lay below, the river danced beneath, countryside rolled beyond, and the sea glinted in the distance. It was dazzling and brilliant as I stood there with my kid brother and my parents, Reflecting now on that moment, I am fairly sure it was the first time I ever really felt that I had experienced what it meant to be alive. Up until then, I had a little perception of the world of beauty. I had a little perception of the world of trust and love and purity and joy. But right then, its big picture just could not be beaten. Everything was good in that moment, in the deep places of my body and my mind and my spirit. Astonishingly good. And as I've grown older, he writes, I've had a few other experiences like that. And definitely the best times have been in worship when I have known, joining with others, that I belong to God in the depths of beauty, trust, love, purity, and joy. We need to experience the presence of God. If, I have if a day in his courts are better than a thousand elsewhere, why? Would we ever forfeit eternity with him? Number three, very quickly, the humblest of service for the sake of Christ in this life will give way to the glory of eternal reign. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 10 in the second half. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The word doorkeeper here is the Hebrew word safaf. 
This word doorkeeper also shows up in 1 Chronicles 26. It's the word, the Hebrew word shoer. The word shoer is kind of a, a position of prestige. It's like the gatekeeper, the really, the really the one who opens the door for the king. It's a, it's a place almost of royalty, but not true of this word sofeth. Literally, this word means to stand at the threshold, to guard. It's not a position of high status. You were pushed out of the, of the palace on the outside. It was a lowly, not an exalted position. The psalmist said, I would rather live this life of lowly service, pushed outside the palace, but still be near the king than to live the good life in the home of the wicked. To dwell in the tents of wickedness literally means to heap up, to accumulate, to prosper. The psalmist is saying, I would rather be on the outskirts of God's presence than to prosper in the things of the world. Can you say that this morning? Is that how you feel? Greed is destroying our nation. Greed has destroyed many churches. Greed has destroyed our health care system. It has destroyed our politics. It has destroyed almost every governmental system and now is working its way even into the people of God. Actress Lori Loughlin, we all have watched this unfold before our very eyes. She was sentenced to two months in federal prison for her role in that college admissions scandal. She would serve two years of supervised release perform 100 hours of community service and pay a fine of $150,000. Her husband and her co-defendant received five months in prison, $250,000 fine and 250 hours of community service. During the hearings, U.S. District Judge Nathaniel Gorton looked at Lori Laughlin and her husband and he said this, here you are, an admired, successful professional actor. With a long-lasting marriage, two apparently healthy, resilient children, more money than you could possibly need, beautiful home in sunny California, fairy tale life, yet you stand before me a convicted felon. And for what? For the inexplicable desire to grab even more. We struggle in our nation with this greed. The disciples fought about prestige. People abused then and now ministry to get position, to get title. And yet we are told to have the mind of Christ, who though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp on tightly to, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant and was found in the likeness and fashion of man, and he humbled himself. Let me share with you eight ways. This is the best part of the sermon. This is worth every penny you paid to get in today, all right? How do we cultivate lives of humility? Let me share with you eight ways. You may want to jot these down if you don't have the notes. You may hate me when we're done with these eight, but these are really good, all right? Number one, know the greatness of our sin and the greatness of our God. John Owen said two things need to humble us. First, let us consider God and His greatness, His glory, His holiness, His power his majesty and his authority, and then let us consider ourselves in our mean, abject, and sinful condition. You want to stay humble? Think about how great God is. 
and how awful we are. That'll keep you humble. Number two, give up the desire to defend yourself. Won't ask you to raise your hands. How many just can't, you just want to get the last word. You want to, you want to vindicate yourself. When somebody says something nasty, you want to vindicate, you want to defend yourself. Give up the right to defend yourself. Die to what Augustine called the lust of self-vindication. We spend way too much time defending ourselves because we struggle with humility. Thirdly, be harsher on yourself than you are on others. Be suspicious if you become overly concerned with someone else's fault. Be suspicious of yourself. If all of your attention is drawn on somebody else's fault, that's a time to be suspicious with yourself. What fault in me am I hiding by focusing my, what beam or plank in my eye is blinding me to my own situation? Listen, ask yourself when you see someone else's fault, is it enough to have a loving conversation with them about? If not, that it's not a big enough situation to discuss with someone else. Before you run and talk to somebody else about someone's fault, if it's not big enough for you to go to them and talk about it, don't you dare run to somebody else and talk about it. Amen, Pastor Kevin, that's good preaching. Number four, number four, do not become satisfied with your own humility. We can become very satisfied with our own humility and be like the church member who was awarded the medal for humility and then had it stripped away because he wore it to church on Sunday morning, right? So don't become satisfied with your own humility. Number five, I love this. Climb for the bottom rung of the ladder, not the top. Don't always try to get to the top in the best seats. The proverb says, don't demand an audience with the king or push for a place among the great. It's better to wait for an invitation to the head table than to be sent away in public disgrace. Just go for the bottom rung. If God decides to exalt you, let him. But don't you run for that top rung of the ladder. Number six, practice humility in the little things. This is where you all may sign out, get up, and walk out. Andrew Murray wrote this, the insignificances of daily life are the test of eternity because they prove what spirit really possesses us. It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see what we are. To know how the humble man behaves, you must follow him in the common course of daily life. Just ask yourself these questions. Do I give in on the little arguments or do I have to fight? Will you eagerly take the blame for failure instead of passing the buck and throw someone under the bus? Will you refuse to get angry when you get cut off in traffic? Will you be kind to the cashier, oh, oh, even when she makes a mistake? I'm serious now, folks. That's what really marks our humility, not what we do in here when we act humble, what we do in our every... How many are glad you came this morning, right? You wanted this. I know you did. And so practice humility even in the little things. Number seven, forget yourself. C.S. Lewis says, as long as we have an itch of self-regard, the itch of self-regard, we shall want the pleasure of self-approval. But the happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves and have neither but we have everything else. We want to have self-regard so we can have 
self-approval. Number eight, delight only in the Lord. Look at what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, saith the Lord. Teresa of Avila, the Spanish nun, said we shall never completely know ourselves if we don't strive to know God. By gazing at his grandeur, we get in touch with our own lowliness. By looking at his purity, we shall see our own filth. By pondering his humility, we shall see how far we are from being humble. If we humble ourselves, the doorkeeper, the house of God, it will give way to eternal reign. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he, he will lift you the humblest of service for the sake of Christ in this life will give way to the glory of eternal reign. Let me give you the last point and we'll be done this morning. The spiritual blessings that God affords to those who pursue Him sincerely. I want you to get this point. The spiritual blessings that God affords to those who pursue Him sincerely make turning back an incomprehensible alternative. Look at this. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The sun provides shelter. The shield provides protection on the journey as pilgrims. He is a sun to us. He is a shield to us. He provides for me. He protects me. He gives me grace he, how many need grace every day? He gives me grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The blessings that God gives to us if we sincerely pursue him make the thought of turning back incomprehensible. These pilgrims, as they headed that way, they said, God is a sun and a shield to me. He's going to give me grace and glory. He's not going to withhold any good thing from me, so I I'm going to pursue him. One of the great writers, contemporary Christian writers of today, Sky Jathani, in his book, The Divine Commodity, shares this story about a trip that he and his father took to India when he was a kid. And he says, I was walking down the streets of New Delhi, and a little boy uh, approached us. He was just a skinny little guy, skinny as a rail, naked, but for a tattered blue shorts. His legs were stiff, and they were contorted like a wire hanger twisted upon itself. Because of his condition, the little boy could only waddle along on his callous knees. He made his way towards Sky and his father. And he cried out, one rupee, please, one rupee. Sky describes what happened when his father eventually responded to the boy's persistent begging. What do you want, my father said. One rupee, sir, the boy said while motioning his hand to his mouth and bowing his head in deference. My father laughed. How about I give you five rupees, he said. And the boy's submissive countenance suddenly became defiant. He retracted his hand and he sneered at us. He thought that my father was joking, having a laugh at his expense. After all, no one would willingly give up five rupees. So the boy started shuffling away. 
mumbling curses under his breath. My father reached into his pocket and hearing the coins jingle, the boy stopped and looked back over his shoulder. My father was holding out a five-rupee coin. He approached the stunned boy and he placed the coin into the little boy's hand. The boy didn't move or say a word. He just stared at the coin and in his hand, and we passed him, and we proceeded on to cross the street. A moment later, the shouting resumed, except this time the boy was yelling, Thank you! Thank you, sir! Bless you! He raced after us once again, but not for more money, but just to touch my father's feet. Sky Jathani says, This, I imagine, is how God sees us, as miserable creatures in desperate need of His help. But rather than asking for what we truly need, Rather than desiring what he is able and willing to give, we settle for lesser things. One rupee, please, instead of recognizing that he wants to give us every spiritual blessing. Apostle Paul says this, Romans 8, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things if God is for us? Look, look at me for just a moment. God is for us. God is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then notice what he says. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all good things? To turn our back on a God that will give us all things is incomprehensible. Keep pursuing. Keep moving. Stay on that pilgrimage. Let your heart be fixed on knowing him. Why don't you stand with me, if you would, please, and just a couple of more thoughts, and we'll be done this morning. But I want you to listen closely. So we've concluded Psalm 84 this morning. We are together. Listen, let's talk together for a moment. We are together on a pilgrimage. Pilgrimage to experience the presence of God. The good times, the bad times, the struggles, the obstacles joys and the opportunities. When it's all said and done, nothing can compare to knowing the infinite value of God's presence. Let me just ask you a question. Are you willing? We live in a world of uncertainty. There are people really uncertain about what tomorrow holds, what next week, next month, what this year holds been a really difficult year. It's been almost a year now. We're still in the midst of a pandemic. People are concerned about our economy. They're concerned about their retirement, about their jobs, about family members, about mental health. So many concerns. We live in an uncertain world. Are you willing to pursue him no matter what the cost? value of pursuing him is incomparable. Maybe one of my favorite quotes of all time. I feel like I've used this in sermons, maybe I feel like too often, but it's powerful. G.K. Chesterton says this, 
the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. A lot of people, they just say this is too hard. Those valleys of weeping, those dry seasons, those ups and downs, those times when I'm singing God is great and God is good, but I don't feel like God is great and God is good in my life. Those are just too hard. Chesterton says it's not that the Christian ideal has been tried and got too many holes in it. It's been that it has been found difficult. So people don't try. Jim Elliott, and this is it. He was an American missionary. He was murdered in 1956 by the Aka Indians in Ecuador. At the age of 29, he said to stand by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart to gaze at glory and to give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, the pleasure, the sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for Him, if I may only love Him and please Him. Bow your heads with me if you would. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, never surrendered your life to Him, never committed your life to Him, never said, Lord, I believe that on the cross you paid the penalty for my sins and I want to receive you into my life. I want, I want to step into Christ because there's no way I can ever meet that perfection model unless I'm in you. So I want to step into you by faith. I want your sacrifice to cover my sins so that I can know I have eternal life and I want to serve you the rest of my life. And that's you today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. You say, Pastor Kevin, today I want to serve him. Pray for me. Anyone that would lift a hand and say, Would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life today. Anyone in this room that would say, Would you pray for me? I want to surrender my life to Him. Anyone in this place? Anyone in this room? How many then would say with me, I want to pursue His presence at any cost, whatever it costs me. I'm willing to continue forward and to pursue Him because I want to know Him better. I want a day in His courts are better than 10,000 anywhere else. I'm not about to forfeit eternity. Jesus said, a man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. I don't want to look back. I want to pursue His presence no matter what. How many would lift your hand with me and say, that is the desire of my heart. Can we just worship the Lord together and make this our prayer? Just everyone in this room.